0: Feel free to head back there. The rest of us may turn to Genesis chapter 7. Book of Genesis, first book in your Bible, chapter 7. Towards the beginning, we were in the middle. And we return to the flood narrative. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll just make a note. I don't know if you heard this, but while Walt was praying, what I heard was how faithful the Lord has been in answering prayers, in healing, in uh, all sorts of ways, um, providing work, I think about the women's event that was here yesterday and the many who came out and were encouraged by that. The the hole in the side of the wall out in the lobby where an elevator is being put in. We see evidences all around us of the Lord at work. I'm encouraged by that. I'll invite you, if you are willing, to stand with me as I read from Genesis 7. We're going to start in in verse 6 and go through the rest of the chapter. Preparations have been made. The warning has been given. Ark is prepared and now the waters will come down. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals. Of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than fifteen cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the Earth for 150 days. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would teach us this morning through a familiar story, familiar words, familiar truths. Anchor our hearts and minds to you and the salvation we have in you. In the midst of raging seas, we know you are our salvation. and We trust in you, Lord. May you affirm that in us this morning. We pray these things by the name of your Son, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. What are some of life's most uncomfortable moments? I consulted the internet, and I think I came up with a few circumstances that make all of us uncomfortable. For example, when you go to shake somebody's hand and they have a different handshake than you. Or you short each other, don't grab the right part of the hand. Or returning a wave to somebody who's not actually waving at you. One of life's uncomfortable moments. Accidentally sending a personal email to a coworker, Bumping into somebody you canceled plans with. Sending a text on the wrong text thread. Stalking someone's social media post and accidentally hitting like. Accidentally ending a work call with, I love you. <laughs> there are uncomfortable moments that are specifically for Christians, like forgetting the name of the person you're praying for while you're praying with them. (laughs) So when you say, Lord, you know. Mm -hmm. Another great uncomfortable moment for Christians is when the pastor decides to preach a sermon on judgment in hell. And here we are. Uh, Today may be an uncomfortable Sunday. We don't like to talk about the wrath and judgment of God. It's one of those things as Christians that maybe sometimes we'd rather kind of keep in the closet, and we're just going to hide that away. We don't invite non-Christians to that Sunday. We're a little embarrassed about God's judgment the way a teenager often is embarrassed of their parents. and Of course, that embarrassment comes through ignorance and immaturity. But we are uncomfortable when speaking about God's judgment, even though the Bible is very much not shy about it. All throughout scripture we have depictions of teaching about the judgment of God. We could look to the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment upon the Egyptians and the ten plagues. Judgment isn't just for outsiders. Judgment is for the people of God as well. You have judgment upon the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness. And that generation is kept from going into the promised land because of their sin and rebellion against God. Then when they enter into the land, there's the judgment upon the Canaanites as the walls of Jericho fall down. There's judgment again on Israel and Judah as they're taken into captivity. There's judgment promised upon the nations throughout the prophets for their violence and bloodthirst. And of course, the cross that we celebrate that hangs behind me is a symbol of judgment. God's wrath is judgment upon sin. And sin is judged the wrath of God as Jesus Christ takes on the sins of the world. It is by that judgment that we are saved. So scripture is not shy about judgment. In fact, it teaches it and shows God's judgment upon sin and evil honestly and consistently. And the goodness of God is never questioned in scripture because of it. Scripture speaks that God is right when he judges. That's what David says in Psalm 51.4. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Scripture not only says that God is right and good as he judges sin, but Scripture celebrates and glorifies God specifically for his judgment, uh, not just on sin ethereally, but on people who are sinners. It is a praise to God for the judgment on the evil empire, all those who are opposed to God and His people. If you want to know what heavenly worship looks like, what does worship look like in the power of the Spirit, sanctified and pure? Part of it is praise to God, glory in His judgment upon sin. Praise that God condemns sin and evil. So if we believe what our Bibles say, we not only understand that God judges sin and evil, we actually praise Him for it. And that condemning of sin and wickedness is essential to one of our most foundational Bible stories, one of the most famous Bible stories here in the flood and Noah's Ark. It is especially in this section a section of judgment as the waters come down, and we learn that God is a judge, he is the judge, and he is also, in that judgment, the Savior. So you could say it this way. That God is the ultimate judge and the only Savior of this world. God is the ultimate judge and, I would say because of that, the only Savior of this world. Another way of saying it, maybe more simply, is God saves through judgment. That's what we see play out here in Genesis chapter 7, that God saves through judgment. If you're going to understand this story, and understand really all of your scripture, understand who God is, you have to understand that humanity in the fall became corrupt and evil, that we are a sinful people, because of the fall. You also have to understand that God is holy and perfect and will judge sin. And then what we see here, what we need to understand is that God's purpose in judgment is not just to condemn sin, but also to save the world. That he salvages this world through his judgment and saves a remnant. And in through judgment, God will save people and salvage a fallen world. And only he has the power and the right to do both. Both to judge and to save. And we'll see that in the two sections of this text. I've broken it up essentially in half, verses 6 through 16 and 17 through 24. In verses 6 through 16, what we see is that God pours out his judgment as the waters fall. God pours out his judgment. And look at verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. we we'll stop there. We come to this section and the stage is set for the flood. God has called out Noah and his family. Noah has completed the work on the ark. His wife and his sons and their wives are all ready to go in. God has brought animals to Noah. All the animals that will go into the ark, all the pairs. And it seems like that process of getting all the animals into the ark takes about seven days, and then once the seven days are over, the rain will come. Noah at this point is 600 years old, and in fact it gives us the precise dating relative to Noah of when the floods come. The 600th year of Noah's life on the 17th day of the second month. That's specific. I think that's important because it shows us that this is isn't just a fable or a fairy tale, that this is historical, that in the writing of the flood story, is intended to be historical. It gives specific dates here. And we don't know exactly those dates in history, but we know those dates relative to Noah's life. It's a specific day. There are a lot of things we don't know about the story. And I touched on this a couple weeks ago. I'll touch on it again. There are so many things we don't know about the flood narrative. And some of you may come to the sermon series and you're uh, anticipating all your questions are going to be answered about historical events and I'm going to disappoint you greatly. There's all sorts of things. We don't know about this. For example, what about the dinosaurs? I'm going to disappoint you greatly. I don't know. I tried to do some research on this lightly, but it's kind of interesting, actually. Apparently, there are very few fossils in the Arabian Peninsula and Israel and that area, the Middle East. I don't know what that means but it's just kind of interesting. Maybe dinosaurs just weren't around in that area. Who knows? I don't know, because Scripture doesn't say. And Scripture is just not very interested in what happened to the dinosaurs. Maybe they forgot, missed the email about the ark. I don't know about carbon dating. I don't know the relative validity or uh, veracity of the idea of Pangea. Maybe all continents were one, and maybe the flood split. I don't know. I don't know what animals went on the ark. Like, how many different kinds of dogs did you need to reproduce the variety of dog species? I don't know if there's just, like, one archetypal dog pair. Um... There's a Farside cartoon, Gary Larson, one of my favorites, that features animals going up into the ark, and there's two dogs on the ark overlooking the edge, and cats are coming up, and the dogs are saying to Noah, "Uh, check their papers, I don't think they have valid ID, they're going to scratch and claw the furniture. There's another Farside cartoon that has a picture of Noah with a couple of animals, pairs of animals around him, and then hooves sticking up in the air from the ground, and leopards looking at each other suspiciously, and Noah says, well, so much for the unicorns. <laughs> but from now on, all carnivores will be confined to sea deck. Yeah. Who knows what happened with the animals? I don't know which ones are on there, we know that they're there. there there's even a question uh, as to, and some of you might condemn me for just bringing up the question, but there's a question as to whether the flood was universal, global, or local. I'm convinced the way the scripture reads, especially in verses to come, that this is a universal flood. I think that's the way the Bible reads naturally. I think, what's the point of an ark? It's just local. But I would say, there are those who are committed Christians who believe that this is a relatively local flood to this ancient the area of the ancient Near East, and that they can read this biblically and faithfully and validly and come up with that conclusion. And I don't think we need to excommunicate each other over whether we think it's a universal or local flood. But my point in bringing all that up is to say we have to be careful about what the story actually says and what our pet interests are. Pet interests are fun to talk about, But don't let your interest in those circumferential things or peripheral things, don't let that keep you from what the text is actually saying, what the message of the flood actually is, and what God wants us to know from it. So he's not going to answer a question about the dinosaurs. That's great. We can have fun studying it. But the real point of this is, here is judgment upon the earth, and this is what you need to know. So this is what we're going to focus on. The floods came down. So as verse 11 says, On that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now do you notice something about the way the waters enter in, right? They come from both sides. It's not just rain coming down, it's springs coming up. Which, if you go back to your second day of creation, should kind of sound familiar. What did God do in the second day of creation? He separated the waters from each other, the expanse. Separate the oceans from the sky. So it's almost as if God was separating the waters of chaos from each other in creation, and now in an act of decreation, God lets his restraining hands go and the waters of chaos come back. It is a decreating moment. What God has once created, He is now sending back into chaos and death as the waters come down. And in that, a few are saved. Verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. There's of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female, of every living thing as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord shut him in. Now, if you're just looking at that passage and you ask yourself, what's repeated here? There's a theme uh, that's repeated over and over. And it's just the animals <laughs> went into the ark. So, as we think about this being a famous Bible story, part of the reason is because there's so much focus on the animals, and that's compelling and interesting, and it should be. We don't know which ones were there, but this is, it seems to be important. Repeated over and over again, that pairs of animals went into the ark. Why is that so important? We touched on this a few weeks ago, but I'll remind us. Why is it so important that the animals went in? Why does scripture focus on that? It's a way of saying, just as God is decreating, he will recreate. That he is not eliminating all life. That there is still hope for this world, that the God is going to save a remnant, and he is going to restore creation just as he started it, that he's not totally abandoning this project of Earth, but he is saving a remnant, and through judgment, he will recreate. And the animals are living signs of God's recreating intention, through the judgment. He's going to save the world. He loves his creation. And how will he save that world? Notice that last phrase or verse, verse 16. The Lord shut him in. I think this is crucial to understanding the flood narrative. Who shut the door of the ark? God shut the door. And when God shut the door, he shut in Noah and his family and the animals. And at the same time, he shut out all else. God here is actively responsible for judgment upon the earth. He closed the way of salvation to all other life. C.S. Lewis once said that all that are in hell, choose it. And he put forward the idea that hell is locked from the inside. And C.S. Lewis is right when he says that. And what he's saying is that all those who are in hell under judgment are not people who are repentant and saying, Man, I wish I was with God in heaven. I am so sorry. And if I could only choose now, I would choose to be there. Hell is not a place full of repentant people longing for heaven. It is a place of people who are still bitter and angry and in rebellion and do want nothing to do with God. The ability that we have... To repent and to seek God is something only given to us by grace in the first place. Left to our own devices, we would only want nothing to do with God. We would only rebel against Him. And hell is a place full of people who want nothing to do with God, who are still in their rebellion, rejecting God and suffering for it. And we get a peek into that when Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Does the rich man look like somebody who's repentant as he's suffering? Or is he a man who still has not owned up to his own sin, and is still angry and bitter and unrepentant. That's who the rich man is. And that's how all people are in hell. They are not longing to be in the goodness of God. So in that sense, C.S. Lewis is right in that the doors to hell are locked from the inside. But, at the same time, the doors to hell are locked from the outside also. And what I mean by that is God actively is judging and punishing and condemning those who are in hell. And we see a picture of that here in the ark. God shut Noah in, and when he did so, he shut others out. He is active in judgment. He is active in condemnation. Hell is not just the natural consequences of our sin. It is also the active condemnation from God as he eternally pours out his judgment upon sin and evil and wickedness. God is active and it's not passive in it. You say, that sounds so offensive. And I'd say we don't understand then, and to the extent that that offends us, we do not understand God's holiness and we do not understand our own sin. We struggle with God's punishment of evil because we think we deserve better. We don't think our sin, our evil, deserves the judgment and the punishment that it does. Uh, Comedian Jack Benny, older comedian, upon receiving an award for his comedy, once said, I don't deserve this, but I have arthritis and I don't deserve that either. We don't think we deserve what would be coming to us. Our sin isn't that bad. It offends our pride to say that we would deserve judgment, that God would be active in judgment. Preacher Mark Dever says, a gospel that in no way offends the sinner has not been understood. If we understand what the gospel and what our scriptures actually say, it offends sinful people because we don't think we deserve that judgment. So we want to soften God's judgment and say, well, maybe someday everybody in hell will be saved. That's universalism. Or maybe there's all sorts of ways to be saved. Pluralism. We we come up with ways to soften the judgment of God and the wrath of God because we underemphasize our guilt and our sin and underemphasize God's perfection and holiness. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus 10. There's a story here that I think is helpful and illustrative. Your Bible's like mine has the title at the top of Leviticus and the death of Nadab and Abihu. The first three verses say this: Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. It's a scene of judgment. Why are Nadab and Abihu judged? they approached a holy God wrongly. They worshipped, quote-unquote, they brought their worship in their own way, not in the way God had prescribed or approved. They disregarded the holiness of God, said, no, thank you, we'll do things our way. We can approach God in our terms, however we feel. And God... Reinforced his holiness and judged them for it. It There's a lesson for Israel. You will remember, I'm a holy, perfect God. Now, what's more interesting about this, even to me, is the command given to Aaron through Moses. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt, do not tear your clothes. Or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. In the death of the sons of Aaron, the Lord says, the community may mourn, but you, Aaron, and your sons, you are priests before God. Do not mourn the judgment upon sin. Father, your sons have died and I have willed it. Where will your allegiance lie? What will be most prominent in your own heart and mind? Will you be sympathetic toward their evil and complain about my judgment? Or will you understand that you are a priest before a holy God And my holiness must be maintained and prioritized in your heart and mind. How about us? Do we have a proper appreciation? Appreciation for upholding of the holiness of God and His right and His power to condemn sin and evil. If we have biblically trained minds, we will join in with the song of Revelation 19, Hallelujah. Our God judges Babylon. And the wickedness that we see out there and in us will one day be judged and condemned. Praise the Lord. And we we'll say with David, you are right when you judge. God is one who shuts the door. There are other, I've mentioned this a few times, there are other ancient flood stories, a Babylonian flood story, Mesopotamian flood stories, and they all feature a flood and a boat and a hero who's saved through. The waters. In those other flood stories, there's an interesting... There's all sorts of differences. And we've touched on a few of them. One of the differences is in those other flood stories and other cultures, ancient cultures, that the hero is the one who shuts the door. Uh, the, the Noah figure is the one who, he's the one who's responsible for getting all the animals in. Or I don't even know if they have animals in the other stories, but, so forget that. But at the very least, the hero is the one who shuts the door and saves the people. But Scripture reads very differently, doesn't it? God shuts them in. It means that God is responsible for, again, excluding some, and then God is responsible for saving those inside. That is his work to shut them in and to secure them and to save them. God is the one who saves. And that's the other part of this that you have to understand in this flood story, that God is the one who saves, that he is alone responsible for salvation, as Noah is singled out for salvation. So that's what we see in verses 17 through 24. Noah is singled out for salvation. Amongst all people, Noah and his family are singled out and saved, one family left alive. Look at verse 17. Back in Genesis 7. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more and 15 cubits. And I'll stop right there for a moment. Forty days the waters came down. And if you know your Bible, you know that's a significant number, 40. It's repeated elsewhere, isn't it? How many years did the Israelites wander in the desert? Forty years. What were they doing there? What was God doing? Well, he He's purifying them and preparing them for the Promised Land. How many days was Jesus in the wilderness mirroring the wandering of the Israelites. Jesus was in the desert 40 days. What was he doing? Fasting, praying, preparing for his earthly ministry. In Israel, under the Old Testament law, if a woman gave birth to a son, she was ritually unclean for 40 days. A period of purification. Purification. That number is significant, and what it is, it's a period of purification and preparation. And do you see what this is saying here? God is purifying the earth, preparing it for recreation over these 40 days. 40 days of purification, or if you say it this way, God is saving the world through judgment. The rains come down, the waters rose. That word for rising is actually a Hebrew word for basically attacking or triumphing. So one of your translations might say the waters prevailed on the earth. It's the waters winning as they attack the earth. And as the waters prevail upon the earth, above the mountains, the ark floats on top. And a couple weeks ago, we went over the dimensions of the ark, and you may remember that when we talked about the, the construction of the ark, the dimensions, the instructions that God gave, God did not tell Noah to make a sail. Right? That was absent, if my memory serves me correctly. Why is that? Because Noah would have no control over this whole thing. The ark would float on top of the waters and he would be basically only in the hands of God to survive. The ark would float upon the water. And can you imagine? I don't know how well Noah was able to see out. There's a kind of a window all the way around, I think, and the roof on top. So Noah, I think, could see out at some point. But as he looked out, all he would see was just water everywhere. And chaos and destruction, death many feet below. The only safe place... And all of the chaos of the earth, was in this ark that was just securely in the hands of God and not his own. He was totally out of control, but in the hands of God. The only stable ground that existed on the world was in that ark, with no sail, but in God's control. And what I'm saying is that there's salvation nowhere else. In this flood story, there's salvation only here only in this ark under God's control. And I wonder, and This is speculative, but I wonder as the rains came down, the waters burst up, all the other people on the earth, did they cry out to their other gods? Did they cry out to their false gods and cry out, save me, and hear no response? Crying out for help, and there's no other help to come. All the other false gods silent and unable to deliver in this moment because there's salvation nowhere else but in this ark. There's a warning, again, for us and for all time that salvation is only found in the ark that God provides in His hands. And judgment is coming. This is a warning for all of us. And Jesus says this, right? Jesus warns us that this judgment is coming. And as we look upon the flood story, we should also look forward to this will happen again. Not in the same way, Not with rain, and we'll get to that. There's a promise God made. But there's another judgment coming that's similar, and Jesus says in Matthew 24, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just as the days of Noah, so it will be in Jesus' return. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Here's how Jesus applies the flood narrative. Be ready, because another day like it is coming. A thorough and final judging of sin is coming. And here's the good news. God provides the way of salvation. This is the only way of salvation. And just as then, so it will be now, just as then there are people who are planning engagement parties, proposing, dreaming about their kids, budgeting their finances, and saying, this is what we're going to do in a few years. They were living normal lives. And the waters came, and Jesus says, so it will be. Doing normal things. Playing with their grandkids. Getting their education. And judgment will come. And in that day, crying out to false gods will not save you. There is only salvation in God himself, which I invite you to think about with me for a second. makes sense. How could anyone or anything else save from God? If it is God's wrath, God's judgment, who else is righteous enough, holy enough, powerful enough to stop it? What other being or mode of salvation would God look at and say, that's holy enough, that's powerful enough, that's righteous enough to stop my judgment? I think that'll suffice. It is only in God, only in the means he provides, only by his will, only in the salvation he provides that we can be saved. It is only in the ark, it is only in the cross. There is one way of salvation. And the one way of salvation from the judgment to come is in Christ alone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God alone saves through judgment. Read with me. Verses 21 through 24. Notice the repetition. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. When you're doing Bible study again, notice repetition. What's repeated here? Five times in these couple of verses, you have the words all or every. Everything. Every living thing that breathes air outside of the ark died. There is salvation only, only in the ark. There is salvation only in Christ. And you're going to say to me, uh, as we close here, All right, Aaron, we've heard this message a thousand times. I've preached this kind of message a number of times. God is a great judge who will judge sin. There is salvation only in him. Only God saves from God. And you'd say, I know that. I've learned nothing new today. And it's not my goal to teach you anything new today. My goal is to reaffirm what you're tempted to forget. There is going to be all sorts of pressure on you. Internally and externally as you live this life to soften up the flood story and the rest of Scripture and the cross. God wouldn't do that. I mean, they're a really good person. God wouldn't judge them. I'm a really good person. I don't deserve hell. There will be all sorts of temptation over the course of your life to forget the most basic story you ever heard. The story of the flood. And to get sidetracked into all sorts of other things that don't matter and forget the point. And the point is this. God is a holy God and he will judge sin. And he will judge sin in you. And there's one way of escape. Not a bunch. Not multiple options. Not by your own spirituality. Not by your own practice. Not by your own goodness. Not by volunteering down to a local shelter. Not by any of those things. There's one way of salvation in the ark that he provided on the cross of Jesus Christ. There's all sorts of offensive things Christians may believe, but that is the most offensive And it's going to be the hardest to believe all the way through because of it. So I'm going to keep repeating this basic story and this basic truth. God saves through judgment, or as the Apostle Peter says when he reflects back on the flood, he says in 2 Peter 2 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the days of judgment. The Lord knows how to do both. To rescue and save people, and to judge and punish. And both are coming. I know I've gone a little long. I just want to encourage you to stay with this message with me, to know that we are the people going into the ark, telling the world a flood's coming. That's our message. And their salvation in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, your word constantly warns of judgment coming from beginning to end. This Bible that we believe tells us you are a holy God who will punish the guilty and at the same time in and through that judgment will save a remnant. And there's one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would, all of us in this room, hold that message, hold on to that salvation, and tell others there's a way of escape. It is not a popular message and not one that all will take kindly and receive warmly. But we know that you are in the business of saving some so some will hear and respond just as we have, not because we're better or wiser, but simply because your grace is upon us. So we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who go out with that message that their salvation in Jesus Christ and that some would hear and respond and not die. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for your grace and your kindness upon us. Amen.